Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, Stomping Jen. Episode 97. I was going to ask you. And you know, I was just thinking, despite my admonishments that people lighten up and enjoy during that disclaimer, I sound very angry. And enjoy. Yeah. I think I should re-record it. Yeah, I like it. Well, I'm excited for this episode. Can I tell you why? Tell me why. Please. I would love to. I... You've You're got, so excited. You I know. forgot what you were going to well, say. Well, I was going to say, I have on the show tonight. Yes. Right? And but then you were like, oh, wait, there's another person in the room? Checking my own narcissism. Okay, I said, then. I should not say I. I should say we. Yeah, we are excited. We have a really amazing guest I'm for people. I'm going to say I'm excited. Award-winning author, historian, and teacher. Kate Anderson. We go ahead, hit the button. <laughs> we are going to talk to her about the incredibly important work she's done in the area of Massachusetts state schools and hospitals and special education. Are you ready? I am. I am super excited for this conversation because I have multiple personal connections to this topic that That's will true. be revealed. As we talk. Cool. Let's okay. Get started. Let's do it. The Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. All right, Stomping Jen. Yes. I'm Sawtooth Frank. I'm Stomping Jen. This is the Soft Serve Podcast. Welcome. And as I mentioned in the intro, we have an incredible guest this evening. Mm-hmm. Kate Anderson. That's right. Award-winning author. <laughs> historian. <laughs> Say hi, Kate. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I know I sold you to our audience pretty hard, um, but we love to give our guests an opportunity to kind of say whatever they'd like about themselves by way of an introduction. So we're going to just give you the floor right now just to say hi and to tell our listeners whatever you'd like to about yourself. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how much more I can add to that. That was a that was a pretty good introduction. I mean, I think I can add probably crazy cat lady in there somewhere. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am a twenty year veteran special education teacher, and I work in Springfield, and I love it. Um, I started out in residential treatment facilities, then moved on to juvenile corrections, and now I'm kind of taking a break 
and I'm in an inner city public school, which I love. Um, I am married. We've been spending the last nine years of our relationship uh, renovating a huge old house. And um, we haven't gotten divorced over it yet, so that's a plus. Nice. Um, and nice. then I write in my spare time. That's about it. Okay. Thank you. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot to I get into. I love how you said uh, spare time. I write in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> my spare time. <laughs> as, a, as a fellow crazy cat lady, how many cats do you have? We actually are down to one. Oh. Which, which feels very strange right now, but um, yeah. he's happy being an only cat right now. Well, once you finish renovating that huge house, you'll have plenty of room mm-hmm. to fill it with cats. Don't what? let my husband hear you say that. <laughs> what is the uh, status quo of cats in your household n- normally? Like, what is like what is to you is like the the right amount? Well, we had two cats, two dogs as of a few months ago, and that was a little much because three of them were special needs, and one's just a jerk. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, a little over the top. Yeah. 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 We, Our baseline for cats is three. Three. We were going to have four. It's too many. But four, for some reason, feels like too many. But we also have yeah. a dog, yeah. so. Yeah, that's yeah, true. So once you throw the dogs in the mix, that's, yeah. that's when it just goes haywire. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I, think, I think like an average-sized dog like ours, maybe slightly below she's average, yeah. is worth about 10 cats. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> she's a lot of work. Yeah, so we really have 13 cats. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, Kate Anderson, thank you again for joining us. And as I said in the beginning, um, you are an award-winning author and a historian, and I kind of want to start talking with you about some of the work you've done in history, specifically around in Massachusetts, there have been um, since the early 19th century, I believe. So that's the early 1800s. These state, what what we kind of colloquially know as um, state schools and state hospitals. So before we get into talking about the specifics around what these institutions are. I wanted to ask you how you got interested in this topic to begin with as a historian. Um, I've always been a history junkie. And my parents and grandmother were abandoned building junkies. So those two things kind of came together in a perfect storm of spending my entire life kind of trying to hunt down history and stories that had something to do with buildings. It wasn't until I started teaching at residential treatment facilities that I kind of started to learn about this history that went with treating kids with mental illness and kids with disabilities. And a couple of the people that I work with, worked with at the time had worked at Northampton State Hospital, and a couple of people had worked at Belchertown. So Northampton was the first abandoned asylum I ever saw. And I went up with a friend of mine. Um, just to see it, just to check it out. Uh, and there happened to be a couple of 16 year old kids that came up to us and said, Are you guys going to go in? And of course we're trying to be adults and we're like, no, we're not going to go in. It's not safe. And they're like, oh, it's too bad. Cause we know where the tunnels are. And <laughs> I don't remember even looking over my shoulder to make sure my friend was with me. I just was like, all right, let's go. Um, and so I got a chance to go in the tunnels, come up into the main hospital 
got a chance to see what an asylum looked like from the inside before knew much about it. And then I was just obsessed. I had to learn everything that I could about the history. I started reading whatever books I could get my hands on. Started going through all of the urban exploration websites. And then I discovered Belchertown State School and spent nearly every weekend there for probably a good nine years. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was... Um, that was how my interest started. It was through, through being an educator and working with people that had these incredible experiences of having worked in these massive state institutions. Um, and they had great viewpoints of what it was like to work there, but then what it was like to have to change their entire career to work in these community settings or smaller residential settings. And it was just so fascinating to me. Yeah, and I find it, um, I don't know, I don't, interesting isn't the quite, quite the right word I want to use, but like heartwarming that your grandmother kind of sparked this love of abandoned places in you. Yep. What kind of places did she take you to? My, my grandmother had a thing for abandoned farmhouses, mm. but her, her favorite spot in the world was an abandoned ski resort in Vermont. And... We used to spend every Sunday, my parents, we would, we would go, we'd pick up my grandmother and we would go on these rides. And the only purpose of the ride was to see how lost we could get and to see if we could find something weird, creepy, abandoned at the end of some country road somewhere. And I remember being probably about seven years old and we found this farmhouse in Vermont. My grandmother wanted in so badly that she showed me how to jimmy open a door with a metal coat hanger. So oh my god! <laughs> yep. And my mother's standing there going, "I can't believe you just showed her how to do that." Was your grandma was your grandmother Indiana Jones by any chance? I was close. Let me tell you, she was close. <laughs> yeah, she oh was my something god. else. <laughs> that is yeah. awesome. So when these when these kids um, told you about the tunnels at the Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, uh, not state school, hospital, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you went in there. What were those tunnels like? Were they, I'm just curious, were they creepy? Were they? they so for me, I, I don't, I, I feel like I was automatically ready for whatever I was going to see. So I, I didn't find it creepy. I was just, my head had exploded when they said the word tunnels, first of all. And I went into it thinking, all right, I just need to see everything I can possibly see. And we went down into the tunnels and it was, it was winter. So it was freezing because I mean, they're stone. They're literally like freaking stone tunnels going from one. We went in through a nurse's dorm at the way back of the campus. And we took the tunnel all the way under the campus to come up under the main building. I mean, this was like miles of tunnels. I actually had a student when I was teaching college whose parents met and married at the state hospital. And her mother used to ride her bike from the nurse's dorm to the wards every morning for work. That's how huge these tunnels are. Wow. Yeah. And that first visit, it was really quick. We went through the tunnels, came up in the main building. I got just kind of a little taste of what things were like. Um, but the second time I went back, I had the chance to actually explore the tunnels themselves, which is where the morgue was. Um, so I did get to see the morgue. I got to see the pathology lab and the autopsy table and everything. Um, so 
I have to assume that for other people it would have been exceptionally creepy, but I was just <laughs> so blown away by it. Yeah. And it was just such a unique experience to see that. I have been in some tunnels um, that I would say are a little bit creepy, mostly because they're dark and disgusting. Beltertown would be one of those places. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, where, where we record this podcast, That's Stomping right. Jen, Beltertown, right. Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, now, when I was asking you, I got confused between the terms school and hospital, and I heard you mention asylum before. Could you just tell us a little bit about what those different terms mean? Are they interchangeable? I, I mean, I, I found myself very confused when I was reading about these different institutions. And it is confusing. Um, there's been a number of name changes throughout um, you know, the century or so that these institutions have existed. And they started out as asylums for the insane. Then they became state hospitals. So asylum and state hospital are interchangeable. And some in some places like um, New York, they just call them psychiatric facilities or psychiatric centers. But it all means the same thing. State school is completely different. So state hospitals and asylums for the insane treated the mentally ill. State schools are specifically developed for people with disabilities. We're talking like Down syndrome, epilepsy, cerebral palsy, um, and anybody who is considered to have a less than normal IQ. Okay. And that brings us, I think, to the first state school I want to talk about, which is the Belchertown State School in our hometown, Stomping Gen. And um, it opened in 1915 by my research, and it closed in 1992. And part of my research were your books. So (laughs) um, thank you. (laughs) Um, So... um, Tell us a little bit about the Belchertown State School and what happened there. Um, well, the Belchertown State School was the third state school in Massachusetts, and it was originally opened as just a farm colony. It was directed by the Rebham State School, which is out in Eastern Mass. And so they already had two state schools in Eastern Mass, the Walter E. Fernald State School and Rebham State School. Open, operating, doing great but they had massive wait lists and most of the kids that were on their wait list were from Western Mass. And we all know that as far as everyone else is concerned, Massachusetts ends at 290. There's nothing, there's nothing West of Worcester except for darkness and dragons. Um, (laughs) But finally someone in the Eastern part of the state kind of had a light bulb and said, Hey, maybe we should open a state school where all of these random children are coming from. We don't know what's actually out there, but maybe there should be a school. Um, And so it actually, once they announced that they wanted to put a third state school in, there was actually this huge competition between a number of towns, including Westfield and Holyoke, which I found interesting. Um, Because I kind of can't imagine a state school in either. And Westfield already had the tuberculosis hospital. So it kind of, I thought that part was interesting. Um, But that's, that's how Beltertown came about. And it was just the farm from 1915 until 1922 because they had an issue finding a water source that they could actually use for the school. Um, But so ironic. (laughs) 
it's so ironic because one of the, <laughs> one of the towns that was in the running was Conway, and they got bumped out immediately because they didn't have a water source. But yeah. then Belchertown was like, "Hey, we're fine. We've got everything covered." And then they went, "Oh, wait, maybe we don't." Yeah. <laughs> Which the state was not happy about, but they were kind of already so far into it that um, you know they had already bought all those family farms. They had already said to everybody, "All right, this is what's going to happen. We're going to create all these jobs." <laughs> and then they said, "Oh, wait, we have to find a water source first. Um, but obviously, they managed to do that. And the main campus up on the hill started to grow. And initially, it was a model of institutional care. The first superintendent, George McPherson, was, he was just, for everything that I've read about him, he was absolutely incredible. And he fully believed that all children who were considered quote-unquote feeble-minded, because that's what they used to call the kids that were of low IQ back then, that they could all be taught. They could all be educated. They could all learn to read. And they could all learn to do something that would benefit them, make them happy, and allow them to go home to their families or out to foster care or get jobs and live on their own. Um, (laughs) Of course, we know that didn't last forever. And eventually, when... Society started to change. More and more children were being sent away to institutions. But at the same time, the bureaucracy was cutting the funding to these institutions. Belchertown turned into a snake pit, just like anything that you would see in kind of a modern day horror film when we talk about uh, any kind of state institution. So um, I hear that the intention from McPherson was to... um, be able to, um, like you said, um, work with work with um, these people with disabilities, give them some skills, and be able to return them to their home communities. And did that was that successful for a period of time? Did was the school able to do that? And like, what happened? Like, what was the fulcrum? And and the the snake pit part of it? Did they just stop sending? kids back home and they kept them at the school? Like, I'm curious what went wrong there. So when McPherson was superintendent, he was superintendent until the early 40s, and he managed to turn that school essentially into a revolving door. The kids would come, they would get what they needed, they would go back home, and everything was fine. It's hard to kind of pinpoint what the major explosive piece was because it seems to have happened. It happened gradually, but it hit the public all at once. As soon as McPherson was no longer able to fulfill the role of superintendent, he was actually very, very ill. Um, He was replaced by a man named Henry Tadgell, who was previously the superintendent at Rentham. So I would have thought that he would have kind of had a handle on what the purpose of a state school was, but in reading all of his reports, it seems like he just, he couldn't fill McPherson's shoes. He couldn't get close to the town. He couldn't get close to the families. He just couldn't get in there and do what he needed to do. And then all of a sudden we just kind of like snowballed really quickly towards the fifties, then the sixties. And then all of a sudden we had this string of completely inept people in office and no, they, they didn't discharge kids anymore. They stopped discharging kids. They stopped letting parents come and visit. They stopped um, 
basically just stopped taking care of any of the patients the way that they were supposed to, and it became a warehouse. Yeah. What were, what were they doing with the kids there that they weren't returning back to their home communities? Were they using them for, you know, to work on farms? Like, were they doing terrible things with them? Well, <laughs> Belchertown, most of the clients that were able to did work on the farm. The farm subsisted the entire campus. So the farm fed everyone on campus, including staff, but they also sold a lot of their products to the town. So the the farm was very important and keeping that farm running was very important. The farm stayed running until the 1970s. At the same time, up on the regular campus, it kind of became about crowd control, where most of the patients spent all of their time sitting, either sitting on the floor, sitting on a bench, laying in bed, not doing much of anything. Very often you had one staff member that was in charge of 15, 20, 30 kids all at once. And it wasn't just kids. There were adults too, because a lot of the population had aged Mm -hmm. and it just became kind of a, a holding pen for people instead of, any kind of any kind of caring institution. Yeah, so it sounds like they were just um, ma- managing bodies. Yeah, managing is a good word for it. Yeah. Just literally managing. It became about on the staff side control and managing, and on the patient side just survival. Now, before we reach that point, um, I take it from some of my reading and research that. The Belchertown State School did pioneer some important advances in special education and for people with disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about that progress? Yeah. Um, McPherson actually used to lecture regularly. He went out to a lot of the public schools, including the school that I currently teach at, and he would give presentations to teachers on how to work with special needs students in their classrooms because his goal was to have as many students stay out of the state school as possible. So he would actually lead training courses for teachers on how to work with students with disabilities, which was when we think when we think about the way we handle things in, in special education now, we I think we tend to not realize that there were proponents of mainstreaming students even back in 1920. Um, so that was incredibly interesting. And later, after things had fallen apart at the state school, before the state school closed, things kind of came back together, and the staff that was there started to work towards making a lot of changes for the clients. And um, Dr. Howard Shane was working there as a teacher, and he became one of the pioneers of alternative communication for his students, he actually started working with a, with a group of his students there on campus, um, teaching them how to use alternative communication. Um, and the, um, the adaptive design department actually made some of the first adjustable wheelchairs. Uh, at the time, those students and residents that had to use a wheelchair had to use regular wheelchairs that didn't always fit them. They didn't recline, they didn't move, they weren't adjustable in any way, so they they were always uncomfortable. So a lot of the um, 
a lot of the machinists on campus learn very quickly with the adaptive design department how to uh, make adjustable wheelchairs work for those clients. So there was some pretty cool stuff that came out of the state school. Yeah, it's interesting. And as somebody who works, um, I too work in the education field, and I'm just thinking about how we still struggle with adaptive design and getting people to understand the importance of designing um, um, for maximum accessibility. maximum accessibility and usability. Um, still today, like you have to evangelize um, for that in 2020 mm -hmm. and make people pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that somebody was out there doing that um, in the early 1900s is pretty pretty commendable and progressive, actually. Yep. And it's kind of sad that things went off the rails for McPherson the way they did. Go ahead, Stumpy it's, it's just interesting. So uh, many of the buildings are no longer, they've been demolished um, on the state school property, but... Um, Can I just say that scoundrel Tagel has a building named after <laughs> him? Know, I like, yes, he does. Yeah. Um, McPherson did too, but it's gone. It's gone. How many of the buildings were actually accessible? Because the like four, I mean, some of the ones that I'm familiar with that are still are part of the campus, some, some of them are not accessible. Like what we think of as ADA compliant at this point. And um, I'm trying to think. The administration building technically is not fully accessible. Um, what they did, what they liked to do was mm -hmm. kind of um, like a temporary access point one of the older dorms, they just like um, the two dorms that are left next to the administration building, mm -hmm. they have the huge stone staircases that go up almost two stories. So what they would do is they would just build plywood ramps that went down those staircases so that they could get wheelchairs up and down. Totally not safe, yeah. um, but it worked. It was temporary accessibility. Um, the schoolhouse, the, the main auditorium building, they did eventually build a stone wheelchair ramp on the side or mm -hmm. cement rather um but yeah accessibility was um it was tough in those buildings and yeah. i'm trying to think the two industrial buildings had ground level accessibility but i don't think you could go anywhere else in the building i don't think that there were elevators which is so interesting because if it, it was built for disabled people <laughs> they didn't construct right. the buildings yeah. and with that in mind it yeah. seems at all. That's crazy. Well, I think they were so focused on developmental disabilities that mm. when they built the core part of the campus, they weren't thinking of receiving right, clients in wheelchairs. And, yeah. yeah, interesting. I don't, so I think that might be part of it. And I mm. wanted to ask this question before, but I feel like now we can ask it and it's more appropriate. Um, what are the tunnels for in these facilities? Like, what is the purpose of having these tunnels? Um, so there's there's two different purposes. So Northampton State Hospital's tunnels are full-size tunnels that you could fit two gurneys down, one going in one direction, one in the other, because they were patient transport tunnels. Essentially, most of the New England asylums have them. The asylums down south don't tend to because they don't have our weather. Mm -hmm. So the tunnels were built so you never had to go outside when you went from ward to ward. Right. Belchertown's tunnels, however, are not transport tunnels. They were utility tunnels. All of the state school's electrical and heating were all underground. 
So everything was in the tunnels, all the pipes, all the wires. And the tunnels are, um, I'd say maybe three or four feet high and maybe three feet wide. Um, they are not, not fun to, well, weren't fun because they're not there anymore, but they mm-hmm. weren't fun, fun to travel through at all. Whereas Northamptons, you could, I mean, yeah. you could spend when, a whole day hanging out in them. When you say they're not there anymore, did they get filled in? Yeah. Okay. They ended up collapsing them. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. bet there's still some out there. I, I'm sure there are. Don't but go I'm looking sure they're, for them. they're good and gross by now. They yeah. were gross. They were gross when, when there were still people there. So I can't imagine what they look like now. Now, I want to, the next school I want to talk about, or the state hospital I want to ask about, I, I was sharing, um, with you, Kate, when we were talking before we hit the record button, is I'm from Danvers, Massachusetts. That's where old Sawtooth Frank was born and grew up. And there is a state hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts, which I was telling Kate, um, if you grew up in that town, kind of emblazons itself on your psyche. Um mm-hmm. You know, it's not way up on a hill. Yeah, and it, it and it the best way to describe it is it's like this this castle, um, this gothic, ominous structure. Like it's like somebody somebody set out to build the the scariest looking <laughs> hospital they could build. I mean, it, I mean, it's a gorgeous building. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, I was just sharing with Kate though that you know I can still see it in mm-hmm. my head it is such a part of being a resident of that town um and that that hospital opened up in 1818 um closed in 1992 i believe um and when i was doing some background reading on it um again um from some of your books kate um i saw that you talk about how Danvers State Hospital contributed to um, advances in modern psychiatry and mental health treatment. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Um, Danvers actually, again, was when it was built, it was built to relieve overcrowding at some of the other hospitals, including Taunton State Hospital and Northampton State Hospital. And it became a teaching hospital almost immediately. Most of the state hospitals had nursing schools within them because typical rotations for nursing school would only put a nurse in a psychiatric facility for maybe a couple of weeks. And a lot of the nurses coming into the psych facilities weren't really prepared for what they had to deal with. So they created their own nursing schools. Um, They also had, Danvers had a top-notch pathology lab. Um, They were very, very invested in figuring out the biological link between insanity and that the body systems themselves, they were convinced that there had to be some sort of some sort of connection within the patient's brain, something that was not functioning correctly, as opposed to the original ideas that mental illness came from sad spirits or possession or however you wanted to look at it. Um, and Danvers is also the <laughs> It's also where the prefrontal lobotomy was perfected. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's, that's Danvers' claim to fame. 
Um, but at the time, the prefrontal lobotomy was cutting edge um, psychosurgery and used pretty widely and had, I don't want to say positive results, but it had the outcomes that were expected. Um, and they also had kind of a state-of-the-art hydrotherapy uh, hydrotherapy units and they were just cutting edge and all of the other hospitals came and, and visited to see how they were doing things. And for the first, I'd say, I think it was the first hundred years that they were open, none of their wards were locked. All of the patients were able to go where, where they pleased. And um, there were constant visitors. It was kind of a um, very popular thing to do for folks to go and visit the gardens, but also visit the patients. They would bring gifts. They would bring magazines and books and um things for the patients to do and um in that they were very very much ahead of their time i remember as a child hearing about the gardens <clears throat> this was in the probably um very early 1980s <clears throat> late 1970s mm -hmm. um my mother was a nurse um in the town of danvers and i do remember I don't know if the gardens were open then, and my grandmother was also. I was going to say, was a nurse. They both. Neither one of them worked there. Uh, they were not. They were not involved um, in mental health nursing, right. but I, they visited there occasionally. They did mm -hmm. go there. I know that, and I, I, I know one of them would talk about the gardens there. Um, yes. I know that. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long those persisted, but the gardens. Yeah. Um, so, um, and I know you, you mentioned too, that the hospital contributed to some important reforms in mental health treatment, uh, Danvers State Hospital. Um, what kind of reforms did having that, inst that, in what kind of reforms did that institution help put in place? Danvers, Danvers became a big part of the entire deinstitutionalization movement. If you take a look at the timeline of a lot of the state hospitals in Massachusetts, most of them closed in 1991 or 1992, with the exception of Westboro State Hospital um, and Grafton State Hospital actually closed in the 1970s. But by and large, they all closed in the 90s. And as deinstitutionalization rolled through, all of the hospitals had to figure out how best to move their patients out into the community. So Danvers was actually one of the first to do something that's called unitization. They created units based on geographic regions so that they could better prepare their patients to find community resources to rely on. So instead of just closing the doors, pushing everybody out and saying, here's some pamphlets on where to go, they figured out by region where these patients were going to find the best resources and the best support for living out in the community. So when Danvers started to phase down, they did it in a, a very intelligent way. So they had some more modern buildings on the campus. So they first moved the patients out of the old Kirkbride Asylum and into the more modern surgical buildings. And that's where they had a better opportunity to unitize them and prepare them for independent living and independent resources. I'm actually surprised to hear that because one of the 
things I hear constantly from people who live in these towns and even growing up um, is that they, you know, in effect, just opened the gates to the hospitals and just let the people out and didn't do anything for them. Like, I've heard that from people. Well, there's a reason for that misconception. And it didn't necessarily happen on the hospital end. It happened on the community end. Deinstitutionalization was a great plan on paper and in theory, but not in practice. Once deinstitutionalization was signed into law and started being pushed by JFK and then in Massachusetts by Michael Dukakis, the rhetoric was great, but the money wasn't there to back it up. Northampton's a great example. When they closed Northampton State Hospital, within a few months, one of the group homes had burned down. Um, One of the group homes had had a patient choke to death because the staff didn't know what to do in the case of a patient choking to death. Um, And the Northampton police logged hundreds of arrests of people trying to get back into hospital because they couldn't find the resources that they needed and they wanted to go back to their 24-hour care that they had in the asylums. So now we have this massive homeless population Mm -hmm. and then on the other side of that coin we have this massive population of incarcerated mentally ill so that's what people are seeing on this end so it felt like the floodgates opened and they just let everybody out but in truth they tried their best to make it a cohesive process but they weren't given a whole lot of time to do it and the money just wasn't there yeah You mentioned that there was a wave of these closings in the early 90s. Um, Like, effectively, I think they were, except for Westboro, they were all closed by the end of 1992. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what caused that wave? It was mainly, by the time the 90s rolled around, most of these buildings, you have to think about, um, you know, Northampton was built in 1856, Danvers shortly after. Most of these buildings by that point were literally decaying around the patients. So the states had a decision to make. Do we do we ride this wave of deinstitutionalization and get everybody out? Or do we try to sink the money into these buildings to repair them? And obviously the answer was was easy. The state made the call that it's really time for these buildings to just close. We're done. We can't sink any more money into repairing them. It's, it's time for, you know, plus the community healthcare movement had really picked up steam and there was this kind of smoke and mirrors thing happening where it looked like there were enough community resources out there to make it work. So it was just a matter of timing. Wow. So what, what I think I'm hearing And it's a question I had actually written down was that the kind of sprawling um, campuses and giant architecture that they put in place to try to build these vast complexes to help people actually ended up working against them because they, at the end of the day, they, they were too expensive to maintain. Very much so. That is like such a sad, Mm -hmm. like irony in my mind. It is. Because, I mean, you had made a comment about the, you know, the Gothic castle on the hill with Danvers architecture. The architecture of these asylums was actually part of the treatment. They were built on a particular 
footprint called the Kirkbride plan. And it looks very much like from the air, like a bat with its wings stretched out. And the central part, the bat body, was the administration building. And then the wards flanked out from the center. And the further you got away from the center of the building, the more difficult the patient. What? So the patients, yeah. So the patients close to the administration building were the patients who could hold jobs. Sometimes they, they came and went. They could go home on the weekend and then come back. They had visitors pretty frequently. They were able to help out in some of the administrative offices. But then you got out to the tip of the bat wing, and those are the patients that were most likely violent. They were psychotic. They were going to be there for a longer amount of time, or they were in a locked ward. So it was designed so that the patients who would get well quicker were closer to civilization, and the patients who needed more treatment and more attention were spread out further so that they weren't affecting each other's recovery. And every single patient in these hospitals had private rooms. They had a view of the grounds. They, the whole purpose of these Kirkbride buildings built up on the hill was to get people away from the city and away from the things that had made them ill to begin with. And the architecture was all part of it. They believed that if you were surrounded by beauty and you were surrounded by nature, you could get well quicker. Mm. And if you, uh, it's pretty cool. There's a couple of pictures in my Danvers State Hospital book where they actually, every single place where the plaster would meet at a corner in the hospital was rounded out. There were no sharp corners anywhere in the entire hospital. So that patients would never have to be worried about bumping into a sharp corner. That was the type of attention to detail that these places had. Northampton State Hospital was one of the first buildings to have indoor plumbing and indoor and, and actual heating in each one of the rooms, like steam heat. Um, and they had gas lighting. And then they were one of the first to be electrified. Westboro State Hospital is the same thing. They were one of the first buildings in Westboro to be electrified. How and <clears throat> go ahead. I was gonna say how did they how did they light a place like Danvers State Hospital um, before electricity. I mean, it was basic. You know, like I mentioned before, it's like basically a castle. And like you <laughs> described, it's this sprawling bat-shaped complex. Like, yeah. how did they yeah. light? The, how did they light those buildings? It was originally gas lighting. Wow. It was that weird, creepy, flickering gas lighting. Yep. My so, mind is blown by there's, that. There's also daylight too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Windows. Yeah, yeah. They use that. They use that occasionally. Lots of skylights. Lots of skylights. It's not just always dark. I know it's dark right now. Yeah. You probably are thinking about nighttime. I just my I just spiraled into a, a dark place hearing about this Kirkbride Kirk I mean, plan. That is why there's so many of those, like you know, American Horror Story, and mm -hmm. like you know, that's yeah. why there's so many horror yep. horror movies that are like set in these asylum type. I know places. Yeah. Oh, wow. Quite a few set right here in Massachusetts. Some of them filmed here, too. Jeez. <laughs> All right, this was interesting. I read um, in one of your books <laughs> that this Westboro State Hospital that you've mentioned here a couple of times now was the second hospital in the country to um, use homeopathy. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about that? Sure. Um our generation is not the first to 
really get into natural medicine. Um, Westboro State Hospital actually was formed on the basis of using natural cures for insanity. So no medicines that weren't derived from nature. Um, and they did not, for the, for the better part of its existence, they subscribed mostly to the rest cure. So a patient would come in and they would immediately go to bed. And sometimes it was for weeks, sometimes it was for months. And then they would push you out onto the beautiful sun porches and you would sit out there and get some fresh air. They believed that a good diet, a, a balanced and healthy diet with a lot of milk, there was a milk treatment that they subscribed to there, which I found very interesting because it's one of the few places that I've heard of that. But they had this massive dairy farm simply to feed this <laughs> milk treatment that they were using. Um, but they did not like to use um, any of the sedatives or um, other medications that were not natural. So they used things like um, any, any, any kind of herbal supplement or natural um, sedative or mm-hmm. just, it was, it was amazing looking at some of the logs that came out of their original pharmacy and some of the the things that they came up with that they mixed and that they used, um, nothing was synthesized in the lab. Um, there were no psychopharmaceuticals or anything like that. It was, it was just incredible to see when I was doing research on that hospital. Did they use cannabis? Um, I did not find any mention of it, but I wouldn't. It's probably illegal. Uh, back in the early 1900s. No, that was before the prohibition. When was yeah. prohibition? Uh, it was around. Uh, are you going to hold me to this? It was no, somewhere between you. somewhere between the forties and fifties, oh, really? I think. Yeah. Do you think that the that this because it seems like this hospital opened later than these other ones? Do you think that it was open in response to um, some of the methodology that was being used in the other hospitals? That was part of it. So that. It, it was kind of a reaction. The ho- the other homeopathic hospital was in, um, oh God, I'm blanking now, <laughs> New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they had had this massive success rate in discharging patients. So when they decided to build another hospital in Massachusetts, the they decided to take the opportunity to make an attempt at a homeopathic hospital. Part of that, I think, also sprang out of the fact that Westboro is also unique in that it's the very first instance of institutional reuse. Westboro was originally a reform school for boys. So the inside of the hospital was, it was a prison. And when Massachusetts closed that location and moved the reform school, they didn't know what to do with the building. And so along came the founders of Westboro saying, well, we'd like to try a homeopathic hospital, but we don't need one of those giant Kirkbride things. And Massachusetts said, well, we've got the perfect building for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it just, I think it was just kind of a combination of factors that mm-hmm. came together and worked out for it to be a slightly different environment than the big single building yeah, hospitals. And, and Westboro State Hospital in Massachusetts only closed in 2010, 10 mm-hmm. years ago. 
Um, and Kate, your book also mentions that that hospital played a unique role in treating um, deaf and hard of hearing patients. Could you talk about yes. how maybe they were ahead of the curve um, for those um, people? Yep, they initially had the only the only ward for deaf and hard of hearing folks who also had mental illness. Um, now the Worcester Recovery Center, which is on the site of the former Worcester State Hospital, has the one of the few deaf units for psychiatric treatment, and they ended up absorbing a lot of the patients from Westboro. Um, but they were the on, the only the only game in town um, for folks who were deaf of hard of hearing or hard of hearing. Now that hospital closed. Westboro State Hospital closed in 2010. Why did that? institution close? I mean, it made it so much longer than the other ones, but why yeah. did it eventually shutter its doors? They ended up closing it simply because they were building the new Worcester Recovery Center. And okay. they believed the Worcester Recovery Center would provide enough beds to take in the few remaining patients at Taunton, plus the current patients that were at their remaining building at Worcester State Hospital, plus those folks who were at Westboro. So Westboro is odd it started out as a single building that got added on and added on and added on and then they started to work backwards they moved patients forward and forward and forward and forward to the point that all the wards towards the back had collapsed there had been a couple of fires that nothing had ever gotten repaired they literally just closed and locked doors and said we can't use these wings any longer until they were kind of all squished up at the front of the building not quite sure what to do. And then the state said, well, we're building this huge new recovery center. I think we're just going to close Westboro down and we're not going to repair it anymore. That sounds like the craziest space <laughs> management plan I've ever heard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. It's typical. It, it's very typical. <laughs> wow. And I'm just, I'm stunned at how, um, how do I want to frame this? Um, like deferred maintenance mm -hmm. contributed yes. to the downfall of these yep. institutions. Not that they were all doing good things, because as, as we know, they they were not all doing good things. But still, mm -hmm. that that is the reason many mm -hmm. of them folded is yep. just it, it that that is mind blowing to me. Yeah, well, yeah. that's cheap economy. Yeah. Um, yep. So one thing I wanted to know was you you work in special education and you ha you have for a while kind of alongside your um, work as a historian looking at these state institutions how how has your work like your day-to-day -day work as a um, as an educator um, for people with disabilities how does how has it influenced your kind of perception of um, the historical footprint of the state schools and hospitals? I think for me, a big part of it is now that I know what came before, when we get new teachers in the field or I get the opportunity to talk to someone who is willing to listen to me blather on for a while, um, I, I like to, to make the connection between what we did then and why we do what we do now and why it matters. When you go through a graduate program preparing to go out into special ed, they very rarely address the history and how we got to the places where 
you don't put a kid in timeout for eight hours with the door shut. And there's a reason for that. It's not just common sense. There's more to it. Um, we don't, um, you know, we don't use isolation as a punishment. We don't, um, we don't tell an autistic child not to clap their hands or echo speech. They're just learning how the history has influenced the law that we follow and why we write an individualized education plan the way we do. Why do we have these, all of these potential accommodations that we can give a student with special needs? And then on the other end of it, making general education teachers who don't have a special ed background understand when we make an accommodation or a modification for a student with disabilities, we're not making it easier for them. We're not helping them get an, get a leg up or get an edge over the other students. We're literally giving them the tools to learn the same way that their peers are learning. And there's a reason for that. And most of the, most of the educators today don't know the dark, dirty history that preceded what we have now for special education. They've never seen a basement resource room. <laughs> I mean, that which we grew up with in the eighties when all the special ed kids were in that creepy janitor's closet in the basement with, you know, the flickering mm-hmm. light, you know? <laughs> so, um, and plus I like to give a lot of this history to my students too. It helps a lot of my students understand why they have special needs students in their classes because the gen ed kids need to know, well, why, why do we combine classes like this now? Why, why does this kid over here get a copy of the notes and I don't making them also understand where all of this came from. Do those students that you give this perspective to react in a, in, in a way that surprises you when they learn about this? Not where I am now. I now teach honors and advanced placement kids and my kids, I don't think could even tell me which among them are the special ed students because they are all kind of blissfully unaware that there are differences between them when it comes to education. They understand that, yes, somebody over here might be getting a copy of the notes and I'm not, but it doesn't matter because we all learn differently and let's just get that A. Mm -hmm. Um, My kids mostly come to me when they want a dose of creepiness. So they ask questions about (laughs) asylums. Um, So they they know that I, you know, I have the creepy corner and if they want to talk about, you know, abandoned buildings and and hauntings and things like that, they can come to me. Um, But that seems like a good door, maybe an entryway to broader education about this, you know, we started off our conversation with talking about creepy tunnels, yep. <laughs> and like yeah. here we are, like we've we've covered some, you know, really interesting, eye-opening stuff to me. Like mm-hmm. I'm still thinking about that Bat Kirkbride plan. I don't like yep. it. I do <laughs> yeah. not like it. I wanted to ask you: Have you met anybody who has spent time in or lived in these institutions, and did you talk to them for your projects? Oh yes, absolutely. What, um, what was that like for you? It's well, I can I, I'll tell you a, a quick story. I wrote my first book on institutions in 2006, and I self-published it. And I went to do a reading at the West Springfield Public Library, and 
we were setting up for it in the library and have set up like maybe 20 chairs. And she said, you know, we can always put some away if, if it doesn't look like it's full enough. <laughs> and, um, how dare her? Uh, well, yeah. How dare her? <laughs> well, she ate her words because 150 people showed up. Oh my oh, God. Wow. And, oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I had, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but right in the middle of everything, when I started talking about Belchertown, um, this man stood up and he said, my name is Donald Vickis, and I spent most of my life at Belchertown State School. And he started to talk about his experience, and I sat down because I, I was not needed <laughs> anymore. Right. And I just sat and I listened to him talk, and, and so did everybody else. And the audience was a good mix of, you know, young urban explorers who like to break into buildings, um, you know, older people who just came out for the fun of it to hear somebody talk about their book. But then there were a ton of former staff members from Belchertown, Northampton, um, even Western Mass Hospital in Westfield. And everyone was just riveted by Donald. And it turned out he was there with Edward Zakowski, who was helping Donald to write his memoir about his time at Belchertown State School. We have um, that. We have that memoir. What no, is the I name took of it, it? I took it out of the library. Oh, okay. And yep. I read it. Yep. Our son yep. read it too. And our son read it. Yeah. Yep. And it's a phenomenal book. What is it called again? It's called "You'll Like It Here." You'll like it here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It it actually resonated. Very strongly with my son, who was, I think he was 12 when he read it. It's yeah. a little, wow. it's, it's a Good bit, for him. it is, I mean, he's a mature 12 or now he's 13, but. Um, and so, and so Kate, when he, when he stood up and started talking, I mean, you know, I can't blame you. You sit down and you listen oh, yeah. to somebody like that. Yeah. He was incredible. And, and, you know, he, he became someone that, you know, I loved, I loved spending time with and talking to and, and running into whenever I could, um, and since then, I've gotten the chance. I speak yearly at the Denver State Hospital Cemetery Memorial, and there are a lot of former patients that attend that memorial. So I get a chance to see and talk to them and hear their stories about what what community treatment is like now and what their experiences at Danvers were like. Um, I get a lot of emails, um, occasional phone calls, and the last time that, um, when my Danvers book came out and, um, I was on Jay talking, it's a, a radio show out of Boston and a lot of former patients called in to talk to me about the book. So I've gotten, I've gotten the chance to talk to quite a few. Um, and it's incredible. It, you know, it's one thing for me to write about these places and to research them, but it, I didn't live it. I, I've, I've never lived it and I never will because these institutions don't exist anymore. And I can only look at it through my own lens and my own experience. And to hear the stories of the, the folks who actually lived it is just, it's unbelievable. And it makes what I do so much more meaningful. It makes yeah. it worth it. And, I mean, and this, is, I mean, I, I think about this in the context of the importance of history, right? And historians and um, hearing about those people who contact you and tell you how touched they are. Mm-hmm. is giving me chills. My eyes welled up. 
you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and this comes out of your own, like your own passion and interest, you know, um, that, that is just so amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, the importance of like documenting things and mm-hmm. telling stories yeah. and all that work you put in. Um, I, I have a question. So yeah. earlier you mentioned that, um, the state school here in Belchertown that you have have been coming here for like nine years, I think you said. Yeah. And but yet your book on Belchertown just came out, but these other books came out. Were you investigating these other hospitals and facilities previously, or did it just? It just happened that way. Okay. Belcher, <laughs> Belchertown is by far my my greatest love. Um, I decided to write a Belchertown book back in 2013 and I actually had a fully funded Kickstarter campaign to work on the book but in the meantime I wrote um I wrote my two novels and then a friend of mine contacted me one day and said listen I really want to do a book on Danvers and I'm not a writer so I really use some help so that's how Robert Duffy and I partnered on the Danvers book and around the same time we had found out that Westboro State Hospital the entire campus had been sold for redevelopment and it was going to be torn down so it was just kind of an opportunity thing and then shortly after that um, I had gone to one of the memorial services at the Belchertown Cemetery and ran into um, a woman named Lori Whitney, who is the most incredible person I have ever met. Um, And she kind of spurred me to really get to work on the Belchertown book. Um, And I had already had some images that had come from Don Lebrecht, who was the Western region trainer for the Department of Developmental Services, he had actually helped me write my first book back in 2006 mm-hmm. and he's since passed away, but I decided it was time to kind of honor his legacy and his memory. And Lori talked me into it <laughs> um, even more so. And um, I just, I finally pitched it to Arcadia and I said, it's probably going to be a little bit bigger and more in depth than the last two. And they said, it's okay, we can handle it. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was, it was, it was time. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. Um, there are a lot of, so there are a lot of these institutions in the state of Massachusetts. I was looking on um, Wikipedia today and the list is long. We've like skimmed it the is. surface. I would, I wanted to ask if other states had similar types of institutions or are we somehow unique here in Massachusetts. We are unique in the number, the sheer number that we have. Um, If you ever get a chance to, if you visit 1856.org, which is um, Anna Juliet Haber's website, you will see um, she, she, (laughs) our state lights up like a Christmas tree when you put dots for all of the institutions that we had. Um, It's mostly because Massachusetts has always just simply been a leader in health and human services and education. So as Massachusetts grew, so too did our institutions. I mean, when you look at our history, when it comes to schools and colleges and universities, 
alongside even general hospitals. We, we had one of the earliest general hospitals in New England. It, it was just a matter of Massachusetts being at the forefront of literally everything. Massachusetts always has to be first. Well, let's, give a, <laughs> um, let's give a good chime for Massachusetts. <laughs> well, were the patients majority from Massachusetts or did they come from outside of the state? Hmm. Most so initially, the reason that insane asylums were built was because the poorhouses were loaded with a lot of immigrants who had come in that were deemed insane. Hmm. Then ah. it so, and then it snowballed from there that you know we were looking at actual Massachusetts residents. But by then, when you think about Massachusetts, nearly everyone that came into Massachusetts was an immigrant of one one sort or another but Mm -hmm. when we had the huge waves of immigration coming in you know when you think about a person who comes to ellis island and doesn't speak english and has a strange way of dressing and a strange you know strange mannerisms and you know no one understands what they're saying very often they were labeled insane and shuffled off to the poor houses because they couldn't make a living then the poor houses couldn't support the level of insane and thus, Jesus Christ, I knew xenophobia and racism would rear <laughs> yes. its ugly head here. That's a big part of it. Well, I mean, and the scary <laughs> part, too, is like the state school. They had a nursery. They had infants. Like they yes. just had like wards yep. from the state or whatever. I don't even know. Like yep. how. Yeah, the state schools were like a whole other animal when it came to who got relegated to the state school. If a parent went to their primary care physician and said, Little Johnny's not hitting his developmental milestones like his his sister Sally. It was okay, lock him away because there's nothing you can do with him. He's you're not gonna be able to educate him, you're not gonna be able to handle him at home, just just send him to a state school. And, you know, babies who were born with hydrocephaly, which is the the enlarged head and fluid and now I just a few years ago I had a high school student in a classroom who had that. Every once in a while he'd have to have go and have fluid drained but then he'd come back the next day and it was business as usual but back then you know any any child that looked or functioned differently Mm -hmm. was sent to the state schools what are you thinking kind of thinking about all you've learned as a historian what are your thoughts about the relative good versus bad these institutions did for the people they treated and for our society? Um, I have a very unpopular opinion in that I am, I'm very pro-institution, but I'm pro-institution when it's done the right way. There are many people in this world that need 24-hour care and support. Those are the folks who are now in our prisons. And (laughs) right now, the largest mental health provider in the United States is a prison. And we've had to overhaul our entire prison system just to support the mentally ill who are behind bars. And in many cases, it's because they live in a state that has a three strikes rule and they've not been able to access treatment, stay on their medications, whatever it is, and they've landed themselves in jail. And if we had institutions that functioned correctly that could actually meet the needs of this diverse population of mentally ill, we wouldn't have this issue. But as far as the developmentally disabled go, 
I think that we have done a good job of including folks in society as much as humanly possible. And I say as much as humanly possible because people are still human and there are plenty of humans who can't handle the idea of someone with disabilities trying to be an active part of society or receiving any kind of support and education or what have you. I think we've gotten to the point though, where those folks are fewer and farther between. I hope. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, you think about, you know, the state's initiative to deinstitutionalize, but what I just heard you say is that they just shifted from a supportive, yep. uh, trying to address the yeah. challenges that people had for another institution, which is just, yep. you know, yeah. keep them under control. And another yeah. sad irony of this is that the vast majority of mentally ill people are not violent in a prison right. is the absolute last place they should be. Right. Yep. And, and that just exacerbates their mental illness. Yeah. And you can't like, you can't think of a worse place mm -hmm. to put somebody who's struggling with mental illness than a prison. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. <clears throat> uh, what kind of stepping up a level what what has and maybe you already answered this, but I'll ask it anyways. What has studying these institutions revealed to you about humanity and human beings? Oh, and so sorry, much. sorry, that's a that's a big question. I know <laughs> that is a huge question. I, I think <laughs> the biggest takeaway from all of it, and the biggest takeaway that I hope people get from my books as well, is that human beings always begin with the best of intentions and we always look for ways to care for the most vulnerable members of our society. But unfortunately, because, because we are human and because we, we operate in a world that is political and bureaucratic and largely fueled by profit, it, we have a hard time maintaining those good intentions. It's very difficult. I mean, we see it right now with the struggle that's happening with going back to school is how do we expect top-notch care when we don't even have the money for pencils? And right. we are doomed to fail if that's the way we continue. But by and large those who seek to start programs or create any kind of hospital system are always doing it with the best of intentions. There are very few people who get into this profession looking to just strike it rich and, you know, warehouse a bunch of people that they just don't care about. Yeah. And, and I think I think about best intentions gone awry, right? When I think about the lobotomy guy, I'm forgetting his name. Yes, Walter right. Freeman. Yes, Walter Freeman. Like, yes. you know, mm -hmm. and, and and that is a that is a um, that is a snowball of horribleness that just yes. rolled down the mountain and got out of control. And mm -hmm. when money got involved, when his fame, I saw a documentary about 
um, about Walter Freeman, I think. And it, it was fascinating about how it just got away, the procedure got away from yes. him in the medical community. But um, do you ever dream about these institutions that you write about? All the time. <laughs> what are, All what the are the, time. What are those dreams like? Um, it's mostly, for me, it's it's urban exploration dreams. I dream about walking through them. And, um, you know, I've at this point in, in my career, I, I don't explore much anymore because I'm old and I'm slow and I really don't want to run from security anymore. But I've explored, um, I think, close to 50 state hospitals at this point. So mostly for me, it's kind of reliving what I've seen inside the buildings, um, especially if I'm writing about a particular building, I will frequently dream about that building. And um, it, it's hard not to. And I, I, this is something that I'm constantly reading about and constantly talking about and writing about. So it's not surprising that it, it mm -hmm. comes up constantly. Have you ever been a patient in one of your dreams? Um, I have not. I've observed in my dreams, but that's about it. <laughs> um, what are your What are your thoughts on either, you know, stopping the destruction of these campuses and buildings and 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 memorials at least? Um, my first experience with that was Northampton. So Northampton was my first explorer. It was also the first one that I had to watch come down. Um, Northampton's tough because. I wasn't around in the 90s when it closed. I wasn't around for the political movement that sprang up trying to save it. There's a wonderful book called um, Back Row, Back Ward by Mike Kirby, where he talks about um, how hard they fought to get the town to recognize that the buildings could be saved, that they ended up camping out in one of the buildings for, I think, a couple of weeks just to prove that the building was sound enough to to keep obviously it didn't do any good because um you know northampton is it's gone mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the only the only thing that marks that hill as hospital hill is they kept i think three of the original buildings and then the hospital building which is the western region department of mental health office still operates but um i will say the most beautiful part about the loss of Northampton is that um, Tom Rydell, who was a professor at Smith College, used to teach a freshman class on the history of Northampton State Hospital, and their final project was to design a memorial. And he did this every year, and finally one of their designs was chosen, and now the fountain that used to sit outside of the State Hospital, which actually figures heavily in one of my novels, because um, I loved that fountain. Uh, it actually has been reinstalled on the property and they're creating a memorial park. That is awesome. It is awesome. Um, we fought long and hard to get a memorial up at Danvers State Hospital. Obviously, you guys are well aware of, yeah. you know, the fight that we are, you know, I won't say a fight because mass development in the EDIC are, have been wonderful to work with so far in discussing what a long-lasting memorial should look like at Belchertown State School. Mm -hmm. um, but it is hard to watch these buildings go because yeah. they're a big part of history. But then you look at a place like Danvers where they kept the facade 
And I think that's great. But at the same time, sometimes I look at it and think maybe they should have just torn the whole thing down. Yeah. It's either keep it all or tear that. It's yeah. hard. It's really hard because for me, I want the buildings to stay and I want them to stay forever because I want to explore them forever. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't, you can't do that because they do eventually fall down on their own. Yeah. Um, but seeing projects like Danvers to see that some of it got saved. And when you do see the few buildings at Northampton that are original, and when you look at Belchertown and you see that, you know, one of the dorms is still an active business. And then you see the recreation department and Belchertown community television are in original buildings. That's, that feels good to me. As long as there eventually is something that explains to the general public what was once there, mm -hmm. I'm happy. I'm happy because eventually there will be generations that have no experience whatsoever with institutions. Yeah. And that's why what you're doing, um, Kate is so important, I think. So, um, so before we talk about your fiction, I want to, I want to just remind people, right. Kate has helped us, you know, create memorials to these places in her books. Mm -hmm. So 100%. Uh, buy her books, <laughs> read, read them. Yeah. And you know, yeah. Learn, learn little, about it. Learn more about this. It's, it's yeah. fascinating stuff and has, it has ties and connections to so many things in our lives, whether it's, special education in modern education, whether it's um, how we're treating um, um, people with mental illnesses in prisons, mm -hmm. whether it's from an architecture perspective. I mean, there, there's a lot to learn from these books. So go buy some of them and read them. And I love when people reach out to me with questions too. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll link, we'll link to your, we'll link to your stuff in the show notes of the podcast. Um, you mentioned your most recent novel or at least the title of it called hospital hill could you tell yes. us a little bit about that novel hospital hill was actually my first novel oh sorry i oh no that's okay damn you amazon her newest one is the belchertown state school which is not a novel no yeah. i no i meant the but that one just fiction. came out no i'm just saying that yeah. one literally just came out yeah the novels kind of hide underneath all the nonfiction. um all right so um let me give myself a virtual um podcast slap <laughs> that's for me okay what is your most recent novel kate please uh, um the the most recent was called shadows in the ward so hospital hill and shadows in the ward are standalone books, but they connect. Oh, I love connected universes. Yes. So there are Easter eggs in Shadows in the Word that connect back to Hospital Hill. So the next novel in the quote-unquote series, if you want to call it that, is actually called The Burning Season and will probably be out sometime next year. Um, if I stop writing nonfiction long enough to finish <laughs> writing <laughs> fiction. The <laughs> um, Hospital Hill is set at Northampton State Hospital and it takes you back and forth between the early 90s when the hospital was closing and the 1950s when the hospital was at its zenith. Um, and the main character, Valerie Martin, Valerie Martin is um, retiring from the Department of Mental Health, but she takes one last job at Northampton, um, going through some records. And she discovers some anomalies in the records that make her kind of think back to what was going on on the wards at that time. And she discovers a little bit of a mystery, and that's all I will say about that. <laughs> what, um, what, what draws your fictional creative mind to this area? 
it's, it's the buildings themselves. Um, almost every time that I've sat down to write fiction, it starts with a building. It starts with a setting. Um, I am definitely a person who is rooted in place when I read and when I write. Um, it's why I ended up writing so many nonfiction histories of these books, of these buildings rather, is I'm just, I get very stuck on the buildings themselves. I love them. And I had spent so much time exploring Northampton that it just kind of felt natural to turn it into fiction. Um, plus, I think for many people, fiction is more accessible than the nonfiction because you're reading a cozy mystery that just happens to be set in an asylum and you're learning historical fact without even knowing it as opposed to <laughs> sneaky. History. <laughs> yeah, it's, sneaky, it's totally sneaky, sneaky history. history. <laughs> That's exactly what it is because when I, when I do it, so when I do a book event for the nonfiction, I get the same type of crowd each time I get the professionals who are interested in the history or who worked in those places. But then when I do, book events for the novels, I get a different crowd. I get the crowd that probably would never ask me questions at a, at a lecture, but they'll ask me questions at a book reading because it's disguised in asking me questions about the novel itself, where they don't realize they're asking questions about mental health. And that's what I love. I love, yep, sneaky history. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> Has writing about these places as a, um, as a author of fiction revealed anything to you about this topic that you didn't uncover as a historian? Um, I think it just gives me a, a better chance to go into the human side of things in creating the characters in both of my novels. I had a chance to move away from the, the facts and figures and the timeline of historical facts and actually consider, you know, things as simple as, well, what, what would Valerie have worn to her job interview in 1959 at Northampton State Hospital? Or, you know, what would the, what would it have felt like to be a nursing student at Westboro State Hospital, you know, in the early 90s? And I got a chance to kind of look at the inner workings of the hospital from a different way because I was creating a story and I was creating a, a, a mystery inside of a real life place. That's interesting. Now, is your process for writing fiction different than, I mean, this is an obvious question. It, I mean, it has to be, what's your fiction writing process like? How do you, uh, how do you, how do you get started? You, you said you, <laughs> it starts with a building, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, it just, yeah. it, I, I hate to say it, but I, I'm, there are some writers who are plotters and then there are some writers that we call pantsers, like people that just go by the suit of their pants. I am definitely a pantser. I just, pantser. <laughs> one, one day I will think about something and I'll think, Hmm, I'd really like to write a novel about that. And then a couple weeks later I'll sit down and I'll type a little bit and I'll say, okay, kind that that's kind of good. All right. And, and sometimes I'll just leave it and it'll sit in Google Docs and then I'll open it occasionally and go, what is this? Because it's usually untitled and I don't know what it is anymore. But with Hospital Hill, I started writing it and it just kind of, it just flowed. It just, it just happened. Um, but then it sat in a drawer for six years and did nothing because oh, I wow. just, I, I wasn't thrilled with the way it was coming out. And I actually ended up completely rewriting it. The book is completely different from my original 
idea. Its original incarnation is nothing, nothing like what it ended up being. And I'm much happier with how it came out and it made it easier to write the second novel. I wrote the second novel in about six months because I already was forming the idea as I was finishing writing Hospital Hill. I knew what characters I wanted to carry over. I knew what, where I wanted to set it and how I wanted to make it work. Um, and I actually already had in my head planned the Easter eggs that I was going to drop oh, cool. in the second book. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you needed those six years in a drawer to like, I did. like munch, you know, and like, what, yep. let your brain perk. What was the, what was the second novel? What was that called? The second novel is called Shadows in the Ward, um, which is actually named after a friend's book, Shadows in the Asylum by D.A. Stern. Um, if you want a really good asylum-related mind trip, um, Dave Stern's book is phenomenal. It's literally a collection of fake patient records all assembled and you have to kind of read through all of them to solve this mystery that's happening. Um, and I had fallen in love with the book. So I named my second book shadows in the ward as an homage to Dave's book. Um, so there's some kind of connections between you'll see some little Easter eggs in shadows in the ward that came out of Dave's book as well. So <laughs> now, Amazon is also telling me you have two other books available. Yes. So. Are, you, are you not talking about those? <laughs> um, we well, can we cannot talk about them. There, there was a time before I really learned how to write. Um, right. Those are those are um, young adult urban exploration novels. Those are straight um, breaking into buildings. What it's like, kind of um, novels. There, there's two of them. There's Prisoner in the Asylum, and there is um, Slave, and they're okay. both uh, they're both based loosely on some interesting explorations from early on in my my life. And so, what we'll encourage our readers to interpret those in a historical <laughs> context. Yes, yes. Um, please remember those. A different those books part, are, different yeah. books part of are your life. Twenty years old. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> I am not surprised, honestly, to hear that your fiction writing, that you use this um, this pantser uh, methodology to describe it, because I would imagine as a person who writes historical nonfiction, I mean, that is plotting. Like, you've got to, mm -hmm. you, I mean, you've got to be structured, you've got to do a lot of yeah. research, and it's, it, I imagine that's incredibly procedural and oh, structured, yes. and you know, your brain is probably just letting its freak flag fly. Oh yes. When it comes to <laughs> when it comes to fiction, you're like, you yeah, know, screw structure. I'm just going. Oh yes, chaos, please, lots of chaos. <laughs> do you do you um do you have a preference for one form over the other, fiction versus nonfiction, or are they kind of like cats? You appreciate them each <laughs> separately. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely like cats. Um, yeah. I think it, it, it all depends on what kind of a mood I'm in. Uh, but once I get going on a nonfiction project, I can't stop because there is so much organization that's needed with a nonfiction project. Whereas fiction, I can pick it up and put it down without a problem. Um, fiction requires a lot more confidence. So I feel like with the nonfiction, I feel like um, more of an emissary, like it's reportage, like, I'm just simply relaying fact and making sure that everybody knows 
the full story. Whereas fiction, you have to have a lot of confidence in your ability to craft these people and craft this world that you set out to put on, on paper. And, you know, I experienced that lack of confidence with hospital Hills sitting in a drawer for six years. But then when it came out and everyone loved it, I had this surge of confidence. I wrote shadows in the ward and I can't give that book away. Literally can't. I tried giving it away at a book festival and people were just kind of like, mm, no, I'll pass. Thank you. Um, so it, the fiction I think is harder in that aspect, but I, I enjoy, I enjoy both. I think. Mm -hmm. So, Okay, you're working on another novel. Um, what's what's ahead for you in the nonfiction space? Do you have do you have something? Are you planning something you can reveal? I am hoping my ultimate my ultimate goal has always been to put out a full comprehensive history of Belchertown State School and its influence on special education in general. Mm. My plan is that at some point that will go in that project will go and live with an academic press. Um, Belchertown did end up becoming my master's thesis when I got my MFA in creative nonfiction. It looks very different from the Images of America book, but I wanted the Images of America book to come into being as kind of a show opener, I guess. Um, yeah. Like an appetizer. I, yeah, kind of, because I know that, you know, when I go, if I go the academic route with the story of Belchertown, I can't, I won't have a lot of space for images. And there were so many images out there between Cliff McCarthy at the Stone House and um, Don Lebrecht and some of, some of my good friends who are collectors and even my own collection. There was just so much that I felt like needed to be shared and I knew would never make it into an academic text. So it was kind of like a, have this. <laughs> I hope somebody wakes up and awards you an honorary doctorate. For I know. I was going to say, you're like basically writing a whole. Yeah. For this work you've done. I mean, it's, it, it, it is really amazing. And yeah. I, I can't even imagine, I know some of it is a labor of love, but how much hard work and dedication you put into it, you know? Um, it's a lot. And so what do you, what do you like to do for fun? When <laughs> oh, you're God. not that writing, <laughs> not that writing isn't fun, but, um, and it sounds um, like, it sounds like working on your house maybe, or yeah, what, what other yeah, stuff? Working, yeah. working on the house, working on the house yeah. is, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would call that fun. Okay. <laughs> it, has, it has, it has its moments. It definitely has its moments working on this house. Um, but, um, I read a lot, probably more than I should. I think I am better with books than I am with people, but you know, I'm working on that. You seem pretty good. <laughs> you seem pretty good with people by, I don't know, from this conversation. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, for fun. I love, Oh God, I love to escape to the woods. Um, we have a, a trailer out notice and we like to spend a lot of time up there over the summer. Lots of time out on the water. Um, I also do you have do you have a favorite um, water faring vessel? <laughs> we we have we have a pontoon boat, also known oh. as the, the minivan of the sea. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we have a party barge. I was not expecting it. pontoon boat. Yep, um, we used we used to have a speedboat, but um, then we became adults. <laughs> and okay. we have a, we 
have a yeah, we have a pontoon boat now. So something nice. we'll 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 backtrack to um probably an antique wooden boat will be our next <laughs> our next one. A a steam so. paddle boat. Yeah, no, well, actually, it's funny, right? That's the one place that my, my husband and I actually agree on style and era of style is that he likes the, the mid-century, um, like the, the century Coronados and the correct crafts and the, the old wooden boats that are very, very 1940s, 1950s, mm-hmm. um, which is my jam. I love 1940s, 1950s stuff. So. Cool. Um so I'm going to ask you this question. I ask everybody this question on the podcast, and you can interpret it however you want. Okay. okay. Um, I always end up leading our guests, though, in the direction I want, but I won't. I promise. Question. Yep. Thank you, Stamping Jen. <laughs> what have you seen that you can't explain? Mm. Oh, God. Oh, so many things. I hang out in abandoned buildings. I know, right? <laughs> She's the um, perfect guest for this question. Oh, God. All right. So I don't normally go into these buildings thinking about the paranormal or hauntings or anything like that. But um, I explored Norwich State Hospital in Connecticut, which actually was on an episode of Ghost Hunters. Mm. And I was photographing the violent ward which is still, it was still largely intact at the time. And I was in one of the patient rooms and it, there was a bed that still had the horsehair mattress on it. And then a bureau with a mirror. So I'm taking pictures and I realized that somebody had like drawn a swastika in the, the dust. And I was like, Oh, haha, that's so clever. So I take my photographs in, um, in pieces. I, I do what's called bracketing and blending. So I take, the darkest shot that I can get. And then I go a step, couple steps up until I get to the lightest shot I can get. Then I mush them all together in Photoshop. So I get home and I mush these all together and I'm expecting the swastika on the mirror. And instead I see this like big black thing in the mirror. And I'm like, what on earth is that? Oh but it God. just, it looked so bizarre. I don't know what it was. But it was like, Oh, so did it have know, a fate? Did it have a face of some kind? It didn't, it just was like, it looked like the blob from the old horror movies. (laughs) And I, to this day, I have no idea because when you look at the frames individually, it's not there. And I'd like to try to explain it as saying it's, you know, some sort of digital mishap that when you combine them all, it shows up, but I'm going with, (laughs) it's haunted. It's fine. (laughs) It's like, um. Slimer from Ghostbusters. Yes, there you go. <laughs> okay, that that type of uh, I like that. I like that story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm buying it. I think there was something there. You All always right. think there was something there. <laughs> well, Kate Anderson. Do you have a website, Kate? Um, just my BSS friends website right now because that's oh, kind yeah. of my what, huge focus. What is that? The Belchertown uh, State School Friends oh, Association. Okay. What yeah. is the web address on that one? It's bssfriends.org. Okay. I will make sure that gets in the show notes. Um, do you have a Facebook presence that you want people to know about or no? Um, just the Belchertown State School okay. page right now. That's okay. um, that's my focus that I'm driving home. Eventually, my novels will have their own home. I do have an author page on Facebook, but I very rarely post on it because mm. I cannot multitask when I have Belchertown 
to deal with. It's, well, it's so sorry. No, go ahead. I, I know you, you sound like you want to wrap up, but um, have you ever met anybody else as passionate about the history of the Belchertown State School besides, you know, like Donald who lived there? And um, I get people here and there, like um, Robert Hornick, who wrote the introduction for my images book. He wrote a book on the state school as well. Um, and his book is phenomenal. The, the girls and boys of Belchertown state school. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just recently got a chance to meet Dr. Howard. Well, virtually meet Dr. Howard Shane, who has been one of my idols forever and a day. He worked at Belchertown state school in the sixties. Mm -hmm. Um, Steve Kaplan, who helped Ruth Sinkwitz Mercer write her book. I raised my eyes to say, yes, um, I have, gotten a chance to meet him and become good friends with him. Um, Jeremy Whalen, who created this incredible documentary called Purgatory, um, has been a good friend of mine for, for, for forever. And his documentary is just absolutely incredible. And he is, he's probably the person who's about as passionate about the state school as I am. Um, well, you're, and, yeah, your passion definitely shows yeah, through. Definitely. And I'm rushing this along because my computer is telling me it's going to <laughs> restart within three minutes, and oh, I can no. do nothing about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we Technology wanna, is not our friend yeah, tonight. We want to no. thank you um, from the bottom of our hearts yes. for coming on and talking to us. We went over an hour and a half. Um, That's totally fine. And that felt that felt like 10 minutes. Yeah. To me, yep. honestly, I learned. I could talk so for days. Much. Um, so, thank you for coming on. Uh, hopefully, um, you'll come back in the future because I think there's a lot yeah. more we could talk about. Um, yeah, absolutely. And to all of our listeners, we just want to say, what stomping, Jen? Bye now. We love you. <laughs> no, we don't. I do. I love them. Okay, stomping Jen doesn't love you, and um, no, we love you. Thank you. Um, thank you for again, listening. Thank, thank you for, for listening. Coming. Thank you, Kate Anderson. We thank really you. appreciate it. And um, be safe. Be well. Wear um, a mask. Wear a mask. And goodbye, everybody. We love you. Bye now. now. Thank you.